today, I'm going to be talking about a controversial three-letter word that begins with an S. No, not that one. Uh, I know which word you're thinking about. And the reason, actually, that the word sex has been associated with another word, sin, we could think in part to this theologian from the 6th century named Augustine of Hippo. Ever heard of St. Augustine? Anybody? Yep, quite a few of you, right? He has done so much damage to Christian theology and the ways that sex is viewed as sinful. And to be fair, we could also blame another philosopher for how Augustine started thinking this way. And this was a philosopher, by, a Greek philosopher by the name of Plato. How many of you have heard about him? And how many of you, how many of you have heard of the concept of platonic dualism? All right, quite a few of you as well. So what this philosophy supposes is that the flesh is different from the soul or the spirit. That somehow the flesh ought to have a higher dominance or higher in the food chain and be superior to the weakly flesh. And this is indeed where we get the notion that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so this dualism created this versus kind of mentality of flesh versus spirit. And then it became female versus male. Somehow female are more fleshly and carnal and male are more spiritual and otherworldly for some reason, and then it became another binary of black versus white, and we attach moral values to it, like good versus evil, and we attach eventual destinations to it, like heaven versus hell. So thus flew this whole thinking about how the world could be split up into binaries. Now, in my personal opinion, that is not a very good definition of what sin is. Because if we look back in history, the word sin is merely an archer's term to mean to miss the mark. Now, any archer would not hit the bullseye each and every single time, no matter how good they are. So in other words, we as human beings never ever in our lifetime live up to this whole idea of perfection when it comes to our highest ideals or our highest values and belief systems. Am I the only one who thinks that? Or do we all, can we all admit that we've screwed up from time to time, right? Show of hands, how many of you have screwed up from time to time? And how many of you have made a mistake from time to time, right? All of us, have found ourselves in that position. So why attach such a grave consequence to when we screw up as going to hell for all of eternity? And this was indeed the great universalist question of, is there even a place, a final destination, if you will, of a place called hell because we are sinful? In my personal opinion, I would rather redefine sin according to what feminist and process theologian Marjorie Suhaki defined it as, which is sin 
is a violation of relationships, meaning that whenever we are out of right relationship with one another, we are missing the mark of what it means to be a human being in relationship with one another. And so therefore, given that definition, sin could be personal. So it could be indeed the personal actions that we take or don't take, right? Um, such as lying or stealing or murdering or you know any of those other things um, that are mentioned in the Ten Commandments. But sin can also be a collective one, meaning the ways in which the society we live in has missed the mark. And therefore, can we not say that any of the isms could be considered a sin? Racism being one of them, which we'll talk about in a little bit more um, detail in a few here. But can we also talk about the sin of heterosexism and sexism and cisgenderism? Again, in any of the other isms, because I find it interesting that homosexuality is not the sin, but homophobia is the real sin, because that's the thing that misses the mark of being in right relationship with one another. Now, you may be asking, so how is racism considered a sin? Racism, by definition, is racial prejudice plus power. Many of you already know this definition, right? And not as many of us, however, until recently, have begun to look at white supremacy culture as being related to racism. And when I ever, whenever I brought up this word, when I do workshops um, within UU congregations even, people get riled up and triggered around the word white supremacy. They're like, that is not us. We don't go around marching in our hoodies and burning crosses out there, or even, you know, more recently, the Virginia Tech um, incident where, or is, was it the University of Virginia, where there were people marching with tiki torches, chanting neo-Nazi slogans, right? Many UUs and many liberals think that's not us, but white supremacy culture is a lot more insidious than that, and it permeates every aspect of our society because it's a set of values and practices that, are, that, that somehow makes one set of practice or values superior to another. And what was so helpful for me was actually being able to name this water that we swim in called white supremacy culture. And who helped me do that was a, a woman by the name, a Jewish woman by the name of Tema Okun, who came up with 14 characteristics of white supremacy culture. So you're more than welcome to look it up. It's white supremacy culture.tv or is it dot info? One of those, dot info, I believe, is where you could find listed all these manifestations of white supremacy culture, which includes perfectionism, fear of open conflict, worship of the written word, either or thinking, one right way of doing things, more is better, so on and so forth, which we could pinpoint, not just in American society, but almost in every single Unitarian Universalist congregation I've been to. Therefore, I would propose that 
white supremacy culture and racism is what is so embedded and which is what makes it so difficult to dismantle these systems of oppression in our congregations and in our culture in general. And I think it's rather valiant that this congregation has done at least three things to move this conversation forward. One is that it actually built it into the mission statement that we are here to dismantle racism and other forms of oppression, which is applaudable. Is that a word? Um, worthy of applause, right? That we, we done that and that we have a sign outside that says Black Lives Matter. And we have this um, progress flag that's hanging out there as well. And recently, as was mentioned earlier, during the time for all ages, we passed the eighth principle, which talks about how to build beloved community by working again to dismantle these, system, these systems of oppression. However, I find it curious as I was looking through the list of active teams, committees, and groups and affinity groups that we have in our congregation, that at this point, not a single one of them have to do specifically with racial justice. Now I know that there's been efforts in the past to have a specific racial justice team, but that's now being incorporated into the democracy team. So that piqued my curiosity. And the other reason why I wanna bring this up this morning is because um, I, I also realize, as Michelle Obama mentioned, that it's hard to talk about racism without talking about our role in it. Back when she was still the first lady, she said, it's difficult for me to wake up every morning and explain to my daughter, Sasha and Malia, that we're living in a house, i.e. the White House, that was built by enslaved people. Unitarian Universalism is built on a faith that has had a very checkered history, especially its complicity to promoting white supremacy culture. What do I mean by that? Well, before we get there, I wanna mention that we are going through this UUA common read right now called on Repentance and Repair, written by Rabbi Danya Rutenberg. And in it, she has a five-part process on how to engage in this act of repentance. Because again, I wanna, I wanna reiterate that we are all inheritors of this original sin called racism, that we inherited this from our forebearers and it has been handed down, like Wendell Berry said, through the generations and it has become part of our genetic memory and it has become um, so embedded in those of us who belong to the global majority or BIPOC folks, the black indigenous people of color, that when we suffer from it, that becomes part of our ancestral trauma, right? And besides, if even if you belong to the global majority, you could still suffer from internalized racism, for example, and there is also such a thing as colorism. So even people 
living in the same country could experience this whole discrimination of those who are darker skinned than another person, right? So it's a very complicated topic that means that we are all affected by it and that it doesn't matter how liberal or woke you think you are, each of us has work that we need to do. Can I get an amen to that? And so what is that work? Again, the first part of this process, according to Rabbi Ruttenberg, is to name and own the harm. And if any of you have ever been through the 12-step program or any kind of recovery process, you'll know that the first step is to admit your powerlessness. And in this case, it's admitting your powerlessness over the original sin of racism. Now, again, I must say, um, Melanie, would you mind bringing up the slides, by the way? So again, these are the um, five uh, part process. I know you can't read it because the screen is, or the curtain is crinkled, but the first is to own the harm you cause, no excuses, period. And again, in this instance, these two figures, one is saying, you hurt my feelings, and the other one says, you're right, it's not okay. And um, so there's a bit of a, a confrontation followed by a confession. So that's the first um, part of this process. You could um, change the slide now, Melanie. And the first part, this whole thing about confession. Now, again, I must admit that we Unitarian Universalists come from such a positive theology that we don't want to deal with that negative stuff like sin or areas where we might have fallen short of one another. And so we try to ignore that because notice that every single order of service I've been to, there's nothing in there that says a prayer of confession, for example, right? Because it's the whole question of who are we confessing to and what are we confessing about? So I just want to name at this point, as I mentioned before, that we UUs have had a checkered history, especially the, I, I get that the Universalists have partnered early on with the Quakers to work on the abolitionist movement, which again is very laudable. And at the same time, some of the Brahmins who are elites in Boston or other New England places who were Unitarians happen to have some vested financial interests in slavery, for example, operating in the South, right? So it's both and. And some of those ministers actually fought during the Civil War on the Union side in order to make sure that we don't continue this hideous legacy of slavery. And the other confession is that over the years, there have been Unitarians who have worked on eugenics, for example, which again is a mighty big sin that this, our world has engaged with. And we tend to applaud those who march with Dr. King with, from Selma to Montgomery during the civil rights movement, like the Reverend James Reeb and Viola Abbott, who ended up being martyrs for our faith. And we tend to gloss over the fact that immediately after, or not shortly thereafter, there was the quote unquote black empowerment controversy 
and we lost many African American members that way and it split our faith movement. And we hadn't really talked about race openly until 1997 with the passing of the Journey Toward Wholeness Transformation Resolution at the General Assembly at that time. That is a long gap of awkward silence around this issue of racism. And yes, we've done a lot of work since, and in 2017, we still had a hiring controversy within the Unitarian Universalist Association. I was there for that when that happened. And talk about a reckoning of the way we do things, including our hiring practices and the fact that we are just not there yet. So it's time for a reckoning. It's time for a confession. You could read more about it in a book called The Ark of the Universe is Long by the Reverend Leslie Takahashi and Chip Rausch and Leon Spencer. But I could go on and on about that. But needless to say, we need both a personal confession and a public confession around this topic. A personal confession, I'll tell you what it's not about. So when I preach about the subject before, during the receiving line, I got a six page handwritten memo from a congregant saying, you know what, thank you for that sermon, Reverend Jonifer, but I'm not racist because back in college, I had a black roommate and I got along just fine with her. First of all, good for you. Second of all, to be not racist is not the opposite of being racist. According to Ibram Kendi, to be an anti-racist is to be the opposite of being racist. So the question is, what are you doing now to dismantle systems of oppression and to work on not just your racism, but racism that exists in our society? So that's what I wanna to talk to you about. When you, if you wanna confess, confess that. And thirdly, I'm not a Catholic priest. I don't have a confession booth. So it's not like you could just come to me and I could absolve you of all your sins, right? This ain't how it works. Therefore, what does one do to assuage one's guilt? Well, y'all could come back for the next four more Sundays because as you'll notice in that chart, there's four other steps to this reparation and repentance process. But it would be a good start to start with that confession. And the public confession is um, the, the one that I want to lift up. It's the one that was done by the United Church of Christ in Hawaii during the 100th anniversary of the overthrow of the legitimate monarchy there. So those of you who know history, especially church history, know that when they were doing the missionary lottery of who gets to missionize and religiously colonize which country or which part of the world, um, the Congregationalists, who was the predecessor for the United Church of Christ, won that lottery. So they started setting missionaries there in the early 19th century, right? And I've read some of these diaries of these missionaries, and I, it's not even worth repeating in public. The amount of damage that has been done to the indigenous community, all in the name of bringing Christianity to folks, um, was, was so heartbreaking. But at least, again, during that 100th anniversary, the denomination itself made a public apology. 
and they confess their sin of religious colonialism. So that too is laudable. So it's not too late for any of us, including our institutions, to at least name the harm and admit to what we've done. Are we ready to engage in this work is the big question, because some of you may be thinking, you know, don't we already have BIPOC people who are doing this work? And my response to that is yes, and we are tired. Our feet are worn and we need all of our help with this because as Wendell Berry said, white people are harmed by racism as much as BIPOC people are harmed by it. Because Dr. King said, we live in a network of mutuality we are bound together in this network and an injustice somewhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And that none of us are free until all of us are free. And the Buddha says that none of us will achieve nirvana until all of us gets there. Are we ready for universalists to unshackle ourselves from the bonds of racism today? Are we ready? Can I get an amen? then come back for the next four more weeks and figure out how to do this together. Amen. Reverend Jonifer, it's great to get the chance to sit down with you again today. Thank you, Amber. Thanks for having me. Welcome everybody to our Getting the Message where we dive a little bit deeper into this week's service themes. So this week is a continuation of our common read themes. Would you like to elaborate on that a little? Yes, thanks for asking the question. Um, so there's five parts to this act of repentance, as Rabbi Runberg talks about it in her book. And today we're going to cover the first one, which is to name and own the harm. And yeah, so this is that five-step process that we talked about it last week a little bit. So if you need a little bit more information, feel free to hop back to last week's video. Um, but specifically, we're talking about racism as a sin. And uh, as someone who grew up evangelical, I'm used to hearing about sin in church, but Maybe in a UU space, we're not necessarily used to hearing about sin at church. I was raised an evangelical as well, and I'm very familiar with this whole idea of you have to confess your sins, right? And you have to do so publicly. And I, will, I did talk a little bit about that earlier. Um, however, as Unitarian Universalists, I think it's helpful for us to reframe um, these perhaps charge theological words. And again, as I mentioned, sin is no more than an archer's term to mean to miss the mark. And certainly we, all of us have missed the mark in terms of being in right relationship with one another. And I feel like it's helpful to actually not necessarily swing the pendulum all the way back, but again, you know, with the founding of, uh, especially the Unitarian side, coming from such a strong Calvinist background, there's this whole idea that we're all inherently evil. Um, and I know that John Calvin was not necessarily on Martin, Luther, Martin Luther's camp of saying that we're lower than worms, um, thankfully, but you know, it's still relatively close, right? Um, and so, there's this idea of human depravity that our forebears were arguing against and they wanted to put forward a different notion like, 
original blessing, you know, although they didn't call it that because that was Matthew Fox years later. Um, but there's still the idea that all of us have inherent worth and dignity and that there's human goodness around. And this is what eventually led to the Humanist Manifesto, which a lot of Unitarians and some Universalist ministers signed on to in the 1930s. And of course, we found out after World War II that, hey, that needed to be revised because what do you do when there's genocide that's taking place um, in the world? How could you still claim that human beings are inherently good when you have someone like Hitler, for example? that has come around. So over the years, I feel like we're trying to have more nuanced approach to our positive theology. Right. No, as a, as a theology nerd, as a, <laughs> a seminary educated theology nerd and uh, former uh, Calvinist, we were all about the, mm -hmm. the tulip, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints, which basically- I never knew there was such an acronym. We got them all. To take such a beautiful flower and turn it into... <laughs> it's true. Um, you know, they, they love their tulips. They like... Um, mm. There's um, In West Michigan, there is tulip time, but we will not get too <laughs> distracted by a passion for tulips. Um, but they, you know, so it's basically this, uh, like you were saying, this belief that um, humans were inherently depraved, that original sin had ruined the condition of all of humanity in this metaphysical sense. Mm -hmm. And so that there was no way that they could go to heaven without God electing to save them, um, which was this big theological contention that John Calvin had with others that like God chose to save the people versus the humans being able to choose because humans are too damaged to be able to choose. Mm -hmm. But then that means God right. only chose certain people. So what does that mean? And all sorts of predestination, of course, Whew, yeah. and sometimes double predestination, right? Because once isn't enough. And when did the predestination happen? Did it happen before or after the fall? There, yeah. There's all sorts of. I, I've, I've got a, I've got a degree in reformed theology, so I've, I've been there. I've, I've considered these things. It's have uh, you been reformed from reformed theology? Yes, um, but I mean, in a sense, you know, like you were saying, um, universalism. Um, one of the big names in like the beginning of universalism was actually burnt at the stake by John Calvin, right? Uh, Sever right. Severitus. Michael uh, Cerritos, Cerritos and, or Michelle, if you want to use yeah. this. And, um, but then there was a lot, there was some, uh, I've always, you know, joked that Calvinists either like become the very traditional Calvinist or they become Unitarians or they become Universalists because <laughs> they, you know, just admit like, oh, well, if God chose to save everybody, then God should just save everybody then. Right, um, right. And so, you know, Universalism both comes out of like opposition and like a... A, a continuation of and then Unitarianism also has those same like pilgrim uh, roots and the um, they were Calvinist um, and so there's a lot of like similar roots with this view that was being reacted to like you were saying mm -hmm. um, and you know I think um, it, it's fascinating how uh, like your example with World War II how we constantly seem to kind of go in this back and forth of like okay, humans are great. Oh, maybe not so much, <laughs> you know? And I think even we saw a very, very quick version of it of like at the beginning of the pandemic, we're like, wow, look at everybody mm -hmm. taking action. Yeah. And I'm so amazed at what humanity can do. And then within a few months, we're like, maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it seems like we're constantly on the seesaw ways. of yeah. uh, humans are okay. Humans are not. Humans are okay. Humans are okay. <laughs> 
you know, it's it's. Well, it's, that's because it's both and. That's right. what makes it all so messy, right? I wish it were as simple as either or. Either we're all good or we're all evil, but we're both, right? Yeah, that is. Sometimes the binary is both. Indeed, <laughs> yes. Um, and yeah, you know, I think that it is important to name topics, uh, oppressive systems, as being something that you know we're taking part of, not necessarily mm -hmm. with intention always. Yeah. Um, which then is you know still a sinful act that we're, we're we're part of these systems. We're part of these oppressive systems, you know, and we are. Oh, that's going to shape us as humans, even if we, you know, feel like we're being a fundamentally good person, that we might do something unknowingly uh, that would hurt or harm another person's dignity. And, you know, I think it's it's really important to, to have those discussions and name, um, name that this is, you know, a problem to be addressed, a, a sin to repent of. Mm -hmm. Which brings us to how racism is a form of sin, both personally and collectively like I mentioned, and how all of us in some ways are complicit to it. Um, sometimes even folks from the global majority, Black, Indigenous, people of color, BIPOC folks, um, have internalized racism, for example, that they're still working on decolonizing their minds or um, within ethnic groups, within a certain country even, may have colorism where darker skinned folks are still discriminated against and looked down upon um, versus lighter skinned folks. And so it takes, like I mentioned all, uh, before, all of us to work on dismantling racism and dismantling white supremacy culture. So if you'd like to continue the discussion about the Common Read, where our first workshop is going to be on February 22nd, we'd love to have you sign up. Reverend Jonifer, thanks for sitting down with me today. Thank you, and hope you were able to get the message and move deeper into this whole conversation and topic of sin and racism.